<laughs> Anybody want to read chapter 13, 1 through 10? So, I'll read. Okay, Jim will. Okay. Start right now? No, no, not yet. Uh, who wants to read 11 through 22? Awesome, thank you, Justin. Who wants to read uh, 14, chapter 14, 1 through 14? Sweet. And the last, who wants to read chapter 14, 15 through 31? Don't be shy. All right, thanks, Carson. All right, thanks, Carson. All right, uh, Jim, you can go. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate, consecrate me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because of the Lord, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today is the month of Abed, and you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hevites, Jebusites, the land he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This, observate, this observance will be for you to, like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the Lord, the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. And it will be when Yahweh brings you to the land of Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers, and gives it to you. And you shall devote to Yahweh the first offspring of every womb, and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to Yahweh, and every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break his neck, and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And will be when your son asks you in the time to come, saying, What is this? And you shall say to him, With a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it happened when Pharaoh hardened his heart to stiffness about letting us go, and Yahweh killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeemed. So it will be as a sign on your hand and as, oh my goodness. Phylacteries? Phylacteries between your eyes. For with a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. Now it happened that when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not guide them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds and receive war and return to Egypt. And as God turned the people to the way of the wilderness, uh, to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in a battle array from the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, 
God will surely take care of you, and you shall bring up my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Sukkoth and camped and eat them upon the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might go by day and by, them, and by night. Uh, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of, pillar of fire by night from before the people. Chapter 14. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, so that they turn back and camp before Pahanero, between Middol and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal-Lephon, opposite it by the sea. And Pharaoh will stay off the sons of Israel. They are wandering in confusion in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he will pursue them. And I will be glorified through Pharaoh and his army, or his army, so that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. Then the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, and the king, the heart of Pharaoh and his servant has changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let, let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 choice chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of, hardened heart of Pharaoh, a king of Egypt, with strength. And he pursued the son of Israel, and the sons of Israel were going out with an assorted hand. Then the Egyptian pursued them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them camping by the sea, uh, beside Pahai River, and in front of Baal-Sephon. Now Pharaoh drew near, and the sons of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very afraid. So the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh, and they said to Moses, It is because there were no graves in Egypt that ye have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What is this you have done against us in bringing us out of Egypt? It is not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, and that we may serve the Egyptian. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptian than for us to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptian whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Yahweh will fight for you, and you will keep silence. Oh, then Yahweh said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me, speaking to the sons of Israel so that they go forward? As for you, raise up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and split it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of Egyptians with strength, so that they will go in after them, and I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, when I'm glorified through Pharaoh, through his chariots and uh, his horsemen. 
Then the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved that moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt, Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus, and the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea into dry ground. So the waters were split. So the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. Then at the morning watch, Yahweh looked down on the camp of the Egyptians through the pillar of the fire and cloud and brought the camp of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot's wheels to, to swerve, swerve, and he made them drive that with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for Yahweh is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then Yahweh overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army had that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on a dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians de dead on the seashore. The Israel saw the great hand which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians. And the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Great, thank you, thank you. So we're, we're in some epic, epic chapters here. And uh, last Friday, chapter 12, we, we looked at how God brought about this final tenth plague. If you remember, that plague basically killed the firstborn of every uh, Egyptian family while passing over the firstborn of all the uh, families of Israel. So God distinguished, distinguished in a huge way Egypt, the pagan country, and his own chosen people uh, with life and death. So God also, remember, in conjunction with those ten plagues, he gave instructions to uh, his people about a special holiday. What was that holiday called? Passover. Commemorating the exodus for generations to come. Uh, by the way, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to uh, arrange a, a Good Friday uh, uh, Jews for Jesus. Trying to uh, get them to come and uh, do a cedar presentation, a Passover presentation. And uh, they're going to kind of show us kind of where we see Christ in, in the Passover uh, celebration. So uh, if that uh, happens, that'll be great. If that doesn't happen, if the, if the Jews for Jesus guy 
uh, falls through, then I'm then I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure out how to do it, and I'll and I'll and I'll and I'll I'll do the Passover celebration along with the, the Lord's Supper. So with that said, though, this uh, with the Passover came what a new calendar, right? And the calendar would uh, that first month month would mark uh, that that's when that's when the, the Passover would be celebrated. Uh, the beginning of the new year would uh, be a reminder that this is when they became a, a new people, and they were to, and all these instructions for the Passover was designed to uh, uh, impress upon their DNA this this new identity. This new identity is the people of God. And what was their identity about? What was the Passover all about? What was the Passover all about? What did it, what, what was it, what did it point to? Salvation. Redemption, right? The sacrificial lamb that, that whose blood protects them from God's justice. So now in chapter 13, we're going to see, consider, we're going to look at how God prepared Israel for her return to the promised land. And when they get there, they have instructions. When you get there, God says in chapter 13, I, I never want you to forget what I did for you in Egypt, how I saved you, how I rescued you, how I redeemed you. And so in the Passover, in chapter 13, they're going to learn how God relates to his people and how his people are to relate to their God. So in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13, uh, in so many words, God basically says, I own the firstborn of all the humans, of every, every animal. They, all the firstborn are to be set apart to God. They are to be holy. And that implies what? That implies all of Israel was to be holy because the pillar, I mean, the, the firstborn child, the firstborn's son, was, was the pillar of society. Uh, I told you about, you know, in Korea... Uh, maybe not now, but, you know, uh, ever since, every, up until about maybe 15, 20 years ago, the society really, uh, it revolved around the firstborn, the firstborn son. And he was the second father. Once the father died, the firstborn became in charge of the family, you know. Uh, my eldest uncle, he's the oldest son, and my, my grandfather, my, my Korean grandfather died very, very young. So for, from a very uh, early age, my eldest uncle was the the, 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 the the father of the household. And nobody messed with him. I mean, no, my brother, my, my uncles, my aunts, nobody messed with him. Everybody deferred to him. Because uh, they're the pillar of society. So this offering of the firstborn implied that that, 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 that this, this setting up part of the firstborn, it implied that everybody would follow the firstborn's lead. So whatever happens to the firstborn happens to everybody. They kind of represent everybody. And in verse 2 it says, uh, sanctify, sanct, sanctify to me every firstborn. Uh, some of your uh, translations, I think Jim's translation, uh, it read, uh, uh, consecrate to me, right? Uh, make holy to me. Now, do you remember uh, when was the last time God made something holy? When was the last time God made something holy? When was the last time that God set apart something? He consecrated something. He sanctified something. What did he sanctify? Before Exodus. There's one thing he set apart. He set apart as holy. He sanctified. 
What was it? Remember, in, the, in creation, what did he set apart? What did he sanctify? The seventh day. He set apart, remember? Go back to Genesis 2. Uh, Genesis 2. Genesis 2, chapter 3. Genesis 2, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day, and then he what? He sanctified it. He sanctified it. He set it apart. So do you see how the Exodus is related to creation? You see how it connects? And so this sanctifying of the firstborn and this celebration of Passover, it would teach Israel that they were to relate to God. How does, how does God's people relate to God? By being set apart by being holy. Israel, first and foremost, must be a holy people. They must be set apart from the world and set apart unto God. This is who Israel is supposed to be. This is how Israel is supposed to uh, relate to God as represented by the, by the firstborn. That would be the symbol as, as everyone saw the setting apart of the firstborn of of, of the sons, of the children of Israel, and of the animals, they would go, oh, we're all supposed to be like that. We're all, so, we're all supposed to, we're, we are all supposed to be holy. Now, who is God, though? Who is God to, to, to Israel? Verse 3. Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, but for by a strong hand Yahweh brought you out of this place. Yahweh is the Redeemer. And now they're, be, they're being freed from the house of slavery. They're, they're being freed from an old slavery to a new kind of slavery. An old wicked slave master to a new and wonderful slave master, Yahweh. In verse 4 and 5, it says, uh, This day you are going out. This first day in the month of Aviv, that's the first month uh, uh, when you leave, uh, then when you celebrate Passover on the first day of, of this month, uh, going forward every year, you will commemorate the day you first, you first, you first left, uh, Egypt to enter the promised land. And so when we, when we as little kids, as we, when we were raised in, in, in America, we learned that Christmas comes in the month of when? December. And now the Israelites are going to learn from early on at this point in history going forward, that the most most the most sacred celebration of Israel comes in the first month of Abib in the springtime, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they are they are to practice it when verse 5. When Yahweh brings in, brings uh, to, to you uh, to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Which he swore to your fathers to give it to you a land flung with milk and honey, that you shall do this service in this first month. This is going to be really strange. Because when they go into the land, the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hittites, and Jebusites, th this is new to them too. They're going to be watching these strange, hairy people practice this. They're, they're, going, to, they're going to see how they're going to cleanse their houses from all yeast, from all leaven. They're going to uh, sacrifice a lamb, 
They're going to cover their doorposts, right? They're going to eat unleavened bread for seven days, right? Uh, they're going to all be watching this, right? They're, Israel will be a witness to these surrounding tribes and people that, you know what? Wow, uh, these people are, are, are unique. They're special. And then they're going to see what? The consecration of the firstborn. The setting apart of the firstborn. And that's going to teach what? What's, what's, what, is, what is that going to teach to the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites? These people are holy. These people are holy. And therefore what? Therefore what? If these people are, are, are holy, therefore what? Therefore what? What's the most important thing? That God is holy, right? If the people are holy, then their God is holy. And so this is all for God's glory, right? This is all about God's glory. Now, verse 6. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to Yahweh. So why seven days? Why seven days? Creation, yeah. Creation is tied to redemption. So seven days. And this... Uh, Unleavened bread, it shows that, it, it, it again emphasizes holiness. Israel must be focused on being holy. And then we move to verses 8 and 10, and this is kind of interesting. Going forward from generation to generation, God tells Moses to tell the people, says in verse 8, And you shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. What's so interesting about this language in verse 8? Every generation, they are to say these words of verse 8. Why is this kind of interesting? What? They haven't came out from Egypt yet. No, this is, a, uh, this is uh, in the future. So this is a perpetual celebration in the future. And they're saying, when we celebrate this Passover in the future, when you're in the promised land, this is what you're going to say. Why is this so interesting in verse 8? So 400 years later, they're going to say this to their children. Why? What's, what's so interesting about this? So that you... Well, look, it, verse 8. They're going to tell their, their children, they'll tell your son and their daughter, saying, why are we doing this, Dad? Why, why, why are we doing this, this Passover thing? Why are we eating unleavened bread? Yeah, I, don't want, I want real bread. Why, we eat, why did we have to kill a lamb? I, really, I, I, was, I was so sad when the lamb had to die. But the father going to tell them, is it, be, it is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. Did Yahweh do this for the Father 500 years later? No! But the language is first-person language. It's as if the Father was there. Like, he was actually there when the Exodus happened. and he's, But this is hundreds of years in the future. And you say, this is... This is what God did for me when I came out of Egypt. What do you mean you came out of Egypt? You, you, never, you never went to Egypt, Dad. 
And what is this telling you? It's, 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 it's showing there is this, this solidarity that the blessings of the Exodus will be the same exact blessings for all of God's people. That the community of the God's people in every era into the future are to fully identify with this exodus. Uh, it says, uh, look at verse 9, and it will be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes and the law of Yahweh, with the law of Yahweh being in your mouth. For with his strong hand, Yahweh brought you out of Egypt, right? The father is telling the son this. Yahweh brought you out of Egypt. What do you mean? I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't even born then. But the, the, the memorial, the celebration, it's the, it's the, it, you remember it. It becomes a memorial as if we were there. It's, a, it's as if we were there. And when the, Lord's, when the Lord's Supper, when the Passover is transformed into the Lord's Supper, this connects all of what God did for his people, and it, it, it points to the fulfillment of what Exodus was pointing to in the ultimate Passover lamb. And when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, what is he saying? If this is how we are to remember, if this is how the Jews were to remember, as if, as if they were there, this is how we are to remember when we partake of the Lord's Supper. It's as if the, the relevance, listen to me, the relevance of the cross of Christ should be to you as if you were standing next to the cross and you were watching Jesus die for your sins. That's the kind of remembering that we are to, 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 to partake of in the Lord's Supper. That's the kind of remember we, we are to, to, to remember. That, in that way, you know, not like, ooh, that 2,000 years ago, that was a long time. No, 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 no. It's as if you were there. You were there too, at the foot of the cross. It's as if you were on that, there, at Jesus' empty tomb. And, and you went into the tomb, and it was empty. Like, that's the kind of remembering we are to, 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 to exercise when we participate in the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Now, uh, verse 11 and 13, this is kind of the specific instructions. So, guys, listen to me, verse 11. When Yahweh brings you to the land of the Canaanite, which he swore to you and your fathers, and he gives, to, and he gives it to you, you shall devote to Yahweh the first offspring of every, of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own, the males belong to Yahweh. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So, um, the, so, obviously you're not going to sacrifice your own, your firstborn child. Um, so you get to redeem that. You get to redeem that animal. I mean, you, you get to redeem your first son for an animal. So instead of your son, your first, uh, firstborn uh, being sacrificed, you can replace him. You can buy him back with the payment of a substitute lamb. Or, if you have a working animal like a donkey, you need donkey to work on the farm, 
you can redeem that donkey with a with a with a lamb, an animal that you can use for food, a, a goat or a lamb or an oxen. You can make that substitute. Uh, in Numbers 18, the redemption price for children firstborn was five shekels. So you you could have, now you you either can redeem the firstborn animal and the a firstborn son. Um, but you can't keep the firstborn animal. That the firstborn, uh, that the donkey, uh, you have a choice. You can redeem it with the lamb, but if you don't redeem the donkey with the lamb, you have to break its neck. So there's no option. So you can't just kind of get out scot-free. It belonged to God. The firstborn belonged to God. So if it wasn't redeemed, it had to be destroyed. And the ultimate purpose of this instruction was what? It was to prepare the Israelites for the death of Christ on, on, on their behalf. If we, if our life is to be spared, it must be redeemed by a substitute, right? It must be redeemed by the payment of a substitutionary death of someone, something else. And so this redemption system of the Passover it foreshadowed the redemption price uh, paid by Christ with his own blood. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price, you're not become slaves of men. You're my slaves. You were bought with a price. So we're slaves of God. We deserve to die, but God redeemed us. He paid for our lives with his son's life perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. So if he bought you at such a high cost to himself, that means he owns you. He owns me. We're his slaves now. So at the heart of this redemption sacrifice is our full obedience to him. Verse 14 through 16, you know, uh, when your sons ask you in the time to come, saying, what is this? You shall say to them, right? My kids always, my kids, my, my sons always ask me, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we have to do this? So the Passover kids will do the same thing to their father. If they're there to say, son, this is why we do this. With a strong hand, verse 14, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it happened when Yahweh hardened his heart with stiffness about stiffness without, about letting us go, that Yahweh killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh the males, the first spring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I, re I redeem. So the children are to be told that my identity, your identity, son, your identity, daughter, is that you were rescued from slavery in Egypt and you were rescued from death by faith in Yahweh. And we show our faith and our new slavery to Yahweh by dedicating all the firstborn children and all the firstborn male livestock to God. But we buy back the children and the, the, the livestock that are inappropriate for God's offering because God is generous enough to allow us to do that. God still gets an offering, but it's a substitute offering for what he wants to keep. So when we all do this, boys and girls, we're doing something that reminds of, reminds us of, reminds us of his powerful exodus from Egypt and our new allegiance to the Creator. So young children would be taught something like this. So we move to verse 17 of chapter 13, and now we, we start the trip from Egypt to Sinai, and we're going to see all, we're going to get to, 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 to read and study all the various hardships that Israel experienced. But 
the first thing that we learn about Egypt in this, in this trip from Egypt to Sinai to the Promised Land, the first thing we learn is in, found in verse 17. What do we learn about Israel based on verse 17? What do we learn? So it happened when Pharaoh had let the people go. God did not guide them with bodies. He did, did not guide them by the way of the land of the Philistines. The, the land of the Philistines is about northeast Asia. It is the quickest and the shortest route to Israel. That's the easiest way to go. There's a very well-established coastal road called the Via Maris. And yet God says, you know what? can't go that way because these Philistines, they're warriors, they have a great army, they're going to be hostile to us, and um, if, I know it's the easiest route to Israel, I know it's the it's the shortest route to Israel, but, God said, verse 17, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. If they see them, they're going to change their minds, they want to go back to Egypt. So what is, what is God saying about his people? He knows they have no faith. They have no faith. They don't trust him. And so, instead of going the easy route, verse 18, God turned the people to the way of the wilderness. They're going to go through the wilderness to get to the Red Sea. Why are they going to the Red Sea? That's kind of interesting. And so the sons of Israel went up in battle ready from the land of Egypt. In verse 19, uh, Moses took the bones of Egypt with him, for he had made the sons of uh, Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall bring up my bones fr from here with you. So God is faithful. God is faithful to Joseph. God is fulfilling his promise. He's, 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 he's going to rescue them from Egypt. And so in verse 20, they, they set out, they set out from a succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and Verse 21, I want you to remember this, okay, for later. Remember this for later, okay? Yahweh was going before them, okay? Remember that. Yahweh was going before them. And he was going before them in, a, in, a, in this pillar of cloud. And this pillar of cloud was a manifestation of God. Not something that he said to them. But here was the supernatural, massive, visible reminder that God was leading his people personally by day and by night. He was going, verse 21, in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them on the way, and a pillar of, of fire by night to give them light so that they might go by day and by night. He did not take the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of night from before the people. He's leading them. Yahweh is leading them. And now they get to chapter 14, and this is the, the final, definitive, direct revelation of God's glory. And look what he says as they're going. He says in verse 1 of chapter 14, he says uh, to Moses, Speak to the sons of Israel so that they, what? Turn back and camp before Pi-Hahirah, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite by the sea. Right? And, and this is right. It's like, it's like, they're going back home. This is very near, this is near Egypt. It looks like they're returning. And so what is God doing in verse 2? What do you think God is doing? 
He's tricking Pharaoh, and he's trying to bait him. He's trying to intentionally make it look like Israel is lost. And God says to Moses, when that happens, when you turn back, and you go back toward Israel, this is what Pharaoh will say about the sons of Israel. They are wandering in confusion in the land. <laughs> the wilderness has shut them in. They can't go through the wilderness, and they're not going to go by the way of the Philistines, that this well-established road along the coast, the only option is the is the wilderness, and they, and they realize they can't go through the wilderness, so they're, they're coming back. And God is intentionally baiting Israel. He's baiting Israel. The army of Egypt, they need to be humiliated. Why would Pharaoh change his mind? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern theology of their pagan gods. Their gods were very capricious. They changed their mind a lot. They were here one day and they're gone the other day. And so Pharaoh probably maybe has this idea that, oh, they're wandering, they're lost. Maybe their god has left them. So now I get to attack them. Ultimately, we know, verse 4, it was it was God uh, hardening his heart to do what Pharaoh wanted to do in the very first place. And in verse 5, uh, verse 4, uh, God tells Moses, this, this, you know why I'm doing this? I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he will pursue my people, and I will be glorified through Pharaoh and, and all his army, so that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. They'll know my name. They did so. Then the king of Is Egypt was told the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was changed. Even his servants have a change of heart. Remember, they were like, Pharaoh, what are you, you crazy? Let him go, let him go. But now... Even they have a change of heart. And they all say in verse 5, What is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. They realize what a mistake this was. We had this free labor, all this labor to contribute to our economy. Now we let them go. Now they can join forces with the Philistines and be even a greater threat to us. What were we thinking? And so what happens? Verse 6, notice he made his chariot ready. Pharaoh himself gets in his chariot. See, God doesn't just want to draw Egypt out. He wants Pharaoh one-on-one. -on -one. He wants a face-to-face -face meeting with Pharaoh. And he, there's 600 uh, choice chariots and all other chariots in Egypt with offices all, over all of them. Back then, chariots were the most uh, technologically advanced kind of weaponry. You had a chariot, this is like advanced, advanced stuff. This is like the most, the latest uh, uh, stealth uh, fighter jet. The latest, these latest uh, modern tanks. And no, not just any kind of uh, chariots. Look at 600 choice chariots. This is like cutting edge. The best kind of chariots. This is advanced missile systems, right? Sean had all this stuff. This advanced, 600 of the most advanced uh, uh, chariots of Pharaoh's leading it. Leading that in. And what's happening uh, in verse 8, God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. He needs to give Pharaoh the strength to do what, what Pharaoh wants to do to make sure Pharaoh follows through with this. Right? And so this, this showdown between Pharaoh and, and God begins in verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them with all the torches and chariots of Pharaoh, his, his, his uh, horsemen and his army. And they overtook them, camping by the sea, besides P. Haheroth, in front of Baal's Zephon. 
And then, verse 10, Pharaoh drew near, and the sons of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very afraid. They see all these chariots. The Israelites don't have any chariots, right? They know that we, there's no way we'll be able to defeat these chariots. There's no way we will be able to, to defeat this army. And what do we see in verse 10? What do we see in verse 11 and 12? Read verse 11 and 12, and what reoccurring theme that we've seen over and over in Exodus do we see again here? Read verse 11 and 12 for yourself. We're back to the issue of faith. We're back to the issue of faith. They say in verse 11, they said to Moses, is it because there was there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken, taken us away to die in the wilderness? What are you trying to do to us, Moses? Are you trying to kill us? We could have died in Egypt. <laughs> this is pointless. And then, then he says in verse 11, this is really key. What is this you have done against us in bringing us out of Egypt? Now, those of you who have the LSV, you're the only ones who will be able to see this. Where have you seen these words before? What it or, or something very similar? Who else said these words? What is this you have done? Who else said that? Something very similar to that. Look at verse 5. The king of Egypt was told, the people have fled, and the heart of the Pharaoh and his servants was changed, changed for the people. And they said, what is this we have done? Right? You see that? The, the Egyptians say that. And now, verse 11, Israel saying this. What is this you have done? What is this trying to communicate? That Israel is more like Pharaoh in Egypt. They're just like Pharaoh. They're just like Egypt. And this is like the height of, of, of shock. They say in verse 12, is, is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt? Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It, it would have been better up for us to serve the Egyptians than for us to die in the wilderness. We want to be slaves of Pharaoh. We want to go back. We don't want to serve God. We don't want to be his slaves. We want to be slave. We want to be slaves of Pharaoh again. This is ultimate apostasy. And, and Moses further communicates to us, Israel has no faith. And the Exodus can't be the final word. It can't be, it can't, it can't be the end of the story. The story can't end like this. Because Israel is so faithful, faithless. Verse 13. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation for which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again, again forever. Uh, Moses is really showing great faith here. This is kind of a, one of the highlights of his life. This is kind of a, his best day. And then verse 14, Moses says this. Yahweh will fight for you and you will keep silent. Don't worry, Yahweh will fight for you. Yahweh will fight uh, Egypt's army. And remember, what does the name Israel mean? 
Remember what, what, is, what does Israel mean? God fights for you. God fights for you. So Israel, you get you get the opportunity to live, live up to your name. Now, we get to the good part. We get to the real good part. I was I was I, I so love the second part of chapter 14 and the beginning of 15. I was, I was thinking about preaching it the next couple of Sundays, but I didn't want to take a break from James, so I changed my mind. But this this event, this crossing of the Red Sea, it is so important that it's repeated. It's told twice. In the second half of uh, Exodus 14, it's told in narrative form. And then in chapter 15, it's repeated in a poem, in poetic form, when God sings this song. It's repeated twice. In a story form, and then in chapter 15, in a poem. That's how important this is. And so in verse 15, Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, now, they're by the sea, they're by the Red Sea, it's behind them, it's really the Reed Sea, the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea, we had close to the Reed Sea. The Reed Sea is behind them, chariots are coming forward, they can't go anywhere, okay? And Yahweh says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Go forward, okay? Turn your backs around and go forward into the sea. Right? And the, the, the Israelites are like, how can we go forward? There's a sea. This is impossible. This is impossible. And what God is about to do, brothers and sisters, he's about to accomplish an impossible salvation. An impossible salvation. But to God, it's easy, right? He's the creator. He's the creator. He can part the sea. He can part the waters. But onlookers, this is an impossible situation. There's no way God can save us. We are totally hopeless. And so God gives Moses some more information. He says, raise up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and, and split it. And the raising up of the staff, it, it's a symbol of God's power and his presence. And the staff would show that it's not Moses doing this, that it's God that was doing this. And where did we see the staff before? We saw the staff to change the Nile in the first plague when it turned the water into blood, and then Moses raised his staff in the second plague when he produced uh, frogs from the, the, the Nile River. And now the same staff to represent God's power is going to even affect a greater body of water, the Red Sea, causing it to divide. God, this, God could have saved, God could have saved his people any way he wanted to. He could have saved his people by them taking the route through the Philistine land while the Philistines were sleeping. They snuck through, they make it to the promised land. But no, he doesn't do that. God uses the most impossible way of saving his people to show, to show this. That when it comes to salvation, nothing is impossible with God. Israel, Israel, come on, Paul, come on. Israel couldn't possibly imagine that it would be through the sea that, would, that they would be rescued. 
that thought didn't enter anyone's mind that we're gonna we're gonna be saved by walking through the sea. But God's saying, nothing is impossible with you. Nothing is impossible in salvation. And it says that, that um, he would split the sea and the and that Israel will go through the midst of it. Why? Why is God doing this? Because I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to rescue you through the sea, the most impossible way of salvation there is. And then on the flip side, I'm going to harden the hearts of, of, of the Egyptians with strength, so that they will go after you, and I will be glorified through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. And then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I am glorified through his chariots and his horsemen. Okay? Now, look at verse 19. This is really interesting. Then the angel of God, listen, who had been going before the camp of Israel. Why is this interesting? Well, who, who was going before the camp of Israel before? Who had been going? I'm sorry? God himself. Yeah, it was Yahweh. Remember I told you? Go back to Chapter 13, verse 21. It was Yahweh. Oh, I'm take that away. It was Yahweh who was going before them in a pillar of cloud. Right? Verse 21. And now it says, it was actually the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel. So who was it? Was it Yahweh or the angel of God? Who was it? Now, Angel means just a supernatural being. That's all it means. The most basic definition of an angel is a supernatural being. Is God a supernatural being? Sure he is. So he's definitely in that category. But Yahweh is never referred to as an angel, though. Before he's referred to Yahweh, now he's referred to as a supernatural being of God. So who is this? This is Christ. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. He's in the cloud. He's in the he's in the cloud, leading them. <coughs> Go to chapter First Corinthians ten. First Corinthians ten. what it said. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the spiritual food. They all drank the spiritual drink. For they, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And who was that rock? The rock was Christ. So Paul, where did Paul get that from? Well, he read Exodus chapter 14 very carefully. So now we have the beginnings, the, the beginnings of the Trinity here, right? This Trinitarian formulation. He's the angel of God, but he's also Yahweh. The supernatural being, personal, but he's also Yahweh as well. Now look at this, it's really interesting. Verse 20. Um, the, the, this pillar, this cloud, first it was before them, it was leading them in verse 19, and now it stands behind them in verse 19. Verse 20. 
So there's the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there's a cloud in between. And on the Egyptian side, there's darkness. And on the, on, on the Israelite side, there's light. So you have the light for Israel, you have the darkness for Egypt, and again you see this division, this distinction between God's people and God's enemies. Verse 21, God stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh swept the sea back by the strong east wind all night and made the sea into dry ground, so the waters were split. Uh, but who, where, else, where else did we see the strong east wind? Remember? During the locust plague. Yeah. And why is, uh, why is verse 21, why is the dry ground so interesting? Why is the dry ground miraculous? Because if you immediately part the, part the sea, is the ground going to be wet or dry? It's going to be very wet. It's going to be very muddy. The Egyptian army... They're not going to send their chariots into muddy ground. The, the wheels will get caught in that thick mud. They go into the, they go through the, the parting of the Red Sea because they see dry ground. This is a, this is a, a total miracle. And notice you see, what, what do you see? Look at the, the, the words used. You see the sea, you see the dry ground, the waters, the wind, right? Uh, darkness and light. What, what, where did you see this before? Sea, land, darkness, light. Where did you see that before? Genesis. Genesis 1, right? He's the creator. The creator's doing this here. Verse 22. Maybe it was a little, maybe it was a little, maybe it was a little river. Maybe it was a river that they just kind of, it dried up in a spot, it just kind of moved, right? And they got, they, it was a natural event. Well, first of all, it would have been a dry ground if that were the case. Second of all, the word for sea here in verse 21 is always used to describe a large body of water. It's never used to describe a swamp or a mud flat. You see the word again in verse 22. Another, another word that you see, verse 22, look at it again. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. This word wall, it connotes, it's used for very large walls, not, not, not small stone walls or a little uh, house wall, but it's always used of a great wall that surrounds a city. So this is like this massive wall on one side, a massive water wall on the other side, dry ground. And what happens? The Egyptians pursue them, and all of Pharaoh's horses, his, uh, his chariots, his horsemen, they went went into the midst of the sea. And then, this is really interesting. Okay, looks twenty four. Then at the morning watch, Yahweh looked down, and whenever we, this word "looked" is used, it it consistently refers to heaven. So Yahweh is looking down on the camp of the Egyptians through the, the, the pillar of fire and cloud. How is this kind of unique and interesting? Is, is Yahweh in heaven or is he 
being manifested in the pillar of fire and cloud. He's both, right? So, but he can't be both places at one time. So, who is the pillar of fire and cloud? The pre-incarnate Christ and Yahweh is looking down, right? So you see a further formulation of the Trinity here. Yahweh is in heaven and on earth you have the pre-incarnate Christ. Verse 25, God caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. And the Egyptians realized this. They realized that their chariot wheels swerving is, 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 is not normal. And they realize what? Let us flee from Israel, for Yahweh is fighting for them against the Egyptians. They realize that Yahweh <laughs> is directly fighting them, and they have no chance. And isn't that what God said? Back in verse 14, Yahweh will fight for you, Israel. And so what God, what Moses promised the people in 14, verse 14, is apparent even to the enemy. It's clear even to the enemy. And so Yahweh tells Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea and the waters come back over the Egyptians, the, the, uh, the horsemen. Uh, verse 27, look at verse 27. This is kind of interesting. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to the normal day, daybreak, normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. <laughs> They're driving right into the sea walls. Right into the sea, instead of away, away, away from the sea. They're confused. They're confused. And um, verse 29, verse 28, it says what? Okay, go back to number 26. I'm sorry, go back to 28. It says, Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of the one of the, them remained. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Entire defeat, entire total destruction of Egypt's power. But verse twenty-nine: the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand. And on the left. That's what Israel experienced. And verse 30 describes, it defines salvation. It defines salvation. This is the definition of salvation. Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. It was an impossible salvation. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. This is how God saves his people. He saves them with an impossible salvation while destroying all of, all of, all of his enemies at the same time. Right? Don't you see in Revelation at the end of the book, at the end of the story, that saves his people with an impossible salvation while he destroys the rest of his enemies. You saw it here first in Exodus. Exodus is the cornerstone of, of all theology. What you... Um, Verse 30 is something interesting. What, that word seashore is literally uh, the edge of the sea. Those are the, that's the, the, the Egyptians are 
dead at the edge of the sea. Go back to Exodus 2, um, when Moses' mother hid him in an ark, she put the child into it, and she put the child among the reeds, verse 3, chapter 2, by, the, the, literally it's the edge of the Nile, the edge of the Nile, right? And so what do you see here? That this deliverance, this deliverance of Moses, it foreshadows Israel's, Israel's deliverance as they cross through the Red Sea and as God destroys all the Israelite army. You killed my children, I'm going to kill all your children, right? Corporate solidarity. What happens to Moses, deliverance, salvation, will also happen to people that Moses represents. They are one, they are together, and uh, that, that, sh that teaches us uh, about our union with Christ. What happens to Christ happens to us. God raises Jesus from the dead, God will raise us, will raise us from the dead. Now look at verse 31. Then Israel saw the great hand which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, and the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh, and his servant Moses. Did they really believe? Did they really believe? See, you should be asking that question. No, they don't. They don't, they don't believe. So there are times in Scripture where it says they believe, and they didn't really believe. You see that in the Gospel of John. You say they, the people believed, and they don't really believe. They turned away. So there's a false kind of faith that is described in Scripture, and this is not a this is not this is not a saving faith. And so, um, if you're a careful reader, and you saw all that what went on in chapter 14, and, and you saw, and you've been carefully reading all of 14 chapters, you get to verse 31, and naturally you have to question that, right? God intentionally wants you to question this statement. They, they acted as if they believed. They said they believed. But did they really believe? That's what you're supposed to be thinking intentionally by God.